The contemplation of celestial things will make a man both speak and think more sublimely and magnificently when he descends to human affairs. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Do you know what, Matt? That's so true, because I think that us folk who look up into the heavens, correct me if I'm wrong, but we tend to look at things on Earth a little bit differently. Big time. I mean, you can't do it every day, let's be honest. No, and I... But I think when you're staring in a telescope at Jupiter, like a massive geek, (laughs) (laughs) um, I think when you stop doing that, I think you realise that when it's cold outside and you've got to go and get some more milk and you're a bit annoyed about it, it's not that big a deal. Well, particularly right now when you look up into the icy cold sky and you see the moon just hanging there and you go, God, no, that that was worth coming outside in the cold and going to get the shops. Wasn't it? Totally was. Ah, oh, yes. Absolutely beautiful. So how have you been, Matt? I've been very well. I, I should tell you who that quote was by, by the way. Oh, yeah, who? It was Marcus Tullius Cicero, or Cicero. Who knows? Oh, because was... because we don't know how people in the ancient he times pronounced words. Yeah, he? 30 BC. Yeah. There we go. Do you think we'll get corrected on that pronunciation? Well, I, that you can't do. Even if we do do, I, I'm not taking it. <laughs> do do. <laughs> do do yeah, do do. Yeah. Ah, so Jamie, I've got an interview uh, lined up for today that uh, you couldn't be part of, and why couldn't you be part of it? Well, I've just, uh, you know, I just had to hop over to Marrakesh just to see how they're getting on over there. Nice. And they're fine. Good. Yeah, they're Uh, absolutely fine. What a great place. Great people, great country, and it was nice to see some sun, Matt. You know? Yeah, that I am a little bit jealous. Nice. Yeah, I, I, we definitely had very contrasting weeks, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we did, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, this is the interviews with Issa's uh, Giorgio Tomino, who is the head, he's the head of the Vega and Space Rider development programs. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm gutted that I missed it. How was it? Was he Was he a nice guy? A very nice guy, uh, very informative. He's, he's, you know, extremely uh, high up in Issa. And the, and the Space Rider is a really, really interesting program. Uh, and it's, some, it's kind of, as you'll hear, it's, it's a sort of in between being a space plane like the X-37 and things like that and being like a capsule. So it's kind of somewhere, right. it's like a sort of halfway house kind of thing and really, really... Bit of a hybrid. Hybrid. And it should be, uh, we should see its first flight next, uh, in a couple of years, in a couple of years' time. So that should be nice. should be should be great. So uh, I'll play that. We'll play that interview slightly later on. Uh, okay. What should we open up with? We should de- uh, well the funniest story of the week. I think that that broke just after we finished last week's podcast, which was on, <laughs> Elon Musk drink, drink launching his own car into deep space. Oh yes. Yes. And, and not just that, man. Yeah, what's it playing on the radio? He's only going to be playing God on the radio. <laughs> David Bowie on his Midnight Circling Cherry. Mars. Yeah, but Midnight Cherry. I've been driving my Midnight, midnight Cherry. <laughs> I was <laughs> Midnight Cherry does sound like a Bowie song. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, respect. Oh, I miss yeah, him. So... Right, well, I'll tell you what, he's had, he's had quite the week as well, hasn't he? Who, must? Because... Well, what about Boeing? Oh yeah, Boeing of uh, coming in with you know puffing up their chests and going, we're going to beat you to Mars. Saying that they're going to get to Mars first, 
Yeah. And Mars replies, well, well go on then. Did you say Mars or Musk? Musk sorry. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's the same thing. Same difference, yeah, isn't it, yeah, really? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Boeing, well, of course, and, and they're alluding to the fact that, that the first men on Mars will be, uh, will be people riding the SLS. But... Yeah. It has to be said, uh, we, there was one tweet that was flying around by Eric Berger, uh, and it starts like this. An unbiased industry source spitballed tonight that the first SLS launch will probably come around 2023. <laughs> now, Yeah, I was going to say, it's uh, not that soon. That's disastrous. I mean, if, it, if that is true, that is, that is big trouble for the whole programme, I would imagine. Uh, well, completely. And we won't... I mean, it's not as if they're going to do it on their first go. Yeah, and so the earliest we could possibly see manned flight would be for another 10 years, wouldn't be for 10 years, unless yeah. Orion flew up on something like a Delta IV. Oh, it's just crazy. So, I think Boeing... Have, I think they've had a bit of a rush of blood to the head. Yeah, maybe. But then Musk, to be fair, hasn't even built uh, his BFR. Oh, he's the king of Rush of Bloods. However, the difference is he does seem to get there... Eventually. Eventually. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was interesting what David Baker said last week about the the delays with NASA are about the same as the delays with SpaceX and everything else, but the perception just isn't mm. the same, is it? It's, it's, it's quite odd. Yeah. That's very true. So anyway, this 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 car that he's launching to Mars, he's actually launching mm. it to Mars. Now, I got a bit confused because I thought he was going to put it in orbit around Mars, but there was an astronomer called Phil Platt or Plate who who phoned Musk and uh, Musk confirmed that actually it was going to go orbiting around the sun but come as close to the sun as Earth and as far out as Mars. So it's in this kind of weird elliptical orbit that 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 is you know at its nearest point earth-like and at its furthest point mars-like say that again so as close to the sun as earth at its as, right. as, as its nearest point and as far out as mars as its furthest point so it's it's elliptical basically so it's wow yeah it'll be like that for billions of years this stupid <laughs> tesla flying around the solar system which will which reminds me of my uncle bertie bertrand russell's teapot yeah that's out in, yes. that, that's in, in orbit no one can prove that it's not there i'm a big fan of elon's but i i do kind of think why are you doing this <laughs> no because you know what i mean i mean i understand it because I mean, how much money well does it cost to send a car into space yeah but he's, he's got to put something on the falcon heavy and as he points out it's very me no 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 you should put me on there i i weigh far less than a tesla okay no no i can still sing think <laughs> yeah you could sing all the way can you but okay you know let me I mean? let me quote this musk quote first before go you on then. Uh, go on then. just bear in mind that there is a good chance that this monster rocket blows up so i wouldn't be <laughs> so, <laughs> oh God. so, so i oh wouldn't put God. anything of irreplaceable sentimental value on it what do you think? That was... Well, we just talked about hybrids, and that was a hybrid of accents. I know. I, I, you went you went from Welsh to, to Brummie to Indian very quickly. <laughs> I didn't catch any South African. No, it was very good, wasn't it? Uh, wow. Pretty much identical to how he talks. But, it's it's but, the same, But after yeah. hearing that, would you put, would you put yourself on, the, on this rocket? Yeah, maybe I'll take a... Take the next maybe one. Maybe I'll take, take, a, take, take the next Take mission one, two. Yes. Mission two. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just in case so another another story i absolutely loved this week as well was that yeah. nasa has fired up uh the thrusters on voyager one really yeah so so basically the voyager spacecraft have got two sets of thrusters 
the attitude control thrusters, or ACT, and the trajectory correction maneuver thrusters, or the TCMs. Uh, Mm. And they've been using the ACTs to kind of steer the Voyager, for want of a better word, around. Um, But the ACTs are starting to kind of not be so good and and the thrusters have probably worn out so they thought well let's let's go back to let's see if we can use the tcms as a way of uh, keeping the voyager so that it's it's flying in such a way that it can communicate with earth so so they sent off a signal to reactivate the uh, the um these thrusters and that signal traveling at the speed of light it took 19 hours 35 minutes to to get to the spacecraft i mean that that's impressive isn't it that's really impressive and then they had to wait the same amount of time for it to come for the signal to come back to show that it had worked and after 37 years of not being used they fired up and it looks like it's all good can you believe that? Uh, <laughs> that is nuts. And 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 not uh, so. It, Do you reckon it's like you know when them old radiators that that just gather dust yeah. in them, and then you turn them on, and it just smells of uh, <laughs> air and horribleness. I Do you reckon it was a bit. Like I can't that? think of anything that I could switch on after thirty-seven years that's still going to work. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it, 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 that, I mean, it's phenomenal. Yeah. That is, and um, yeah. So that I think that's extended Voyager One's lifetime by at least three years. So that's pretty. Imp- that's pretty cool, isn't it? That's very cool. They must have loved that. Yeah, I mean, Voyager, Voyager just is the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? Really is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, our mates Rocket Lab, uh, who were supposed yeah. to be flying up old Bob Richards, that um, that was supposed to launch yesterday, I think, or or last night. Uh, but then po- probably will launch on Sunday. It's got a 10-day window open for launch. So that's going to be really interesting. That's cool. Yeah. So I'm just, you know, rattling through the news here. Uh, one news story that's uh, a, a pretty good one is the first black astronaut has been honoured on the 50th anniversary of his death. Robert Lawrence Jr. Robert Lawrence Jr. Or Air Force Major Robert Lawrence Jr. Who was tragically killed in a plane crash on December the 8th, 1967. God, that's 50 years. Exactly 50 years ago. Yeah, and uh, he was part Mm. of a classified military space program in the 60s. Uh, And unfortunately, yeah, he crashed his F-104 Starfighter uh, when he was 32. And this, yeah, Robert Crippen, who was the pilot of the first space shuttle in 1981, he said at this uh, massive gathering at the Kennedy Space Center to commemorate, Mm. he basically said, uh, you know, that uh, he was definitely on the fast track and would have gone on to fly the space shuttle, et cetera, et cetera. He he had a doctor's degree in um, physics and chemistry, uh, and he was a test pilot. So this guy was, like, super intelligent and super ace in a plane. So he was the creme. God damn. What a shame. creme. But yeah, well, a real shame. But let's uh, let's tip some caps to uh, Robert Lawrence Jr. today. Absolutely, So this is our interview with Giorgio Tomino, the head of the Vega and Space Rider Development Programs. Ecoute. Hello, Giorgio. Welcome to the show. Hello, Matt. Good afternoon. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background before we uh, get into space planes? Surely, yes. Uh, I am um, an aerospace engineer. 
um, from uh, the University of Rome, La Sapienza. Then after my master's degree, degree in um, aerospace, I joined uh, the European Space Agency in, uh, in the Netherlands. So I spent uh, around seven years in the Netherlands, then uh, working in the technical and quality management directorate in areas like aerothermodynamics, propulsion, um, high temperature materials. Then uh, in 2004, I left uh, the establishment of the European Space Agency in the Netherlands and I moved to the HISA headquarters in Paris. And that's where I joined the Future Launchers Preparatory Program at the time that uh, had the objectives, among others, uh, to uh, define uh, the uh, intermediate experimental vehicle mission, so a demonstrator for uh, uh, hypersonics technologies. And uh, from that moment, I led basically the conception, the definition, the design, the development qualification up to flight. And so I've been, uh, let's say, the, 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 the project manager of that development up to mission director also of the mission implementation, which was successfully concluded in uh, a perfect flight in 2015. So after that, uh, I uh, moved to another establishment of the European Space Agency in Italy, where I'm currently, let's say, sitting, which is the ESRIN, the European Space Research Institute, to manage the Vega and Space Rider program. So I'm actually in charge of the new Vega developments and uh, the Space Rider development as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of space planes at ESA? Yes. When we talk about space planes, in fact, uh, we always have to distinguish uh, uh, the objective of a space plane with respect to capsules. In fact, ESA has been involved in both a space plane and capsules uh, development in the past. And the main difference between space planes and capsules is the, the capability that uh, you have when you re-enter from orbit to perform, uh, uh, let's say, uh, precision uh, landing, uh, and uh, a smoother um, uh, landing profile in terms of environment. And uh, in this sense, um, you might remember that ESA, the first challenge ESA took on the space planes was uh, um, at the end of uh, the, uh, the 80s with the Hermes space plane that uh, uh, then was abandoned. And after that, uh, we have had uh, the ARD capsule that has flown at a certain point. And after that, we started with the development of uh, the IXV, Intermediate Experimental Vehicle, which was also a space plane. And the main difference is in the shape. The difference between a space plane and a capsule is the fact that you have the lifting capability uh, throughout the re-entry hypersonic flight up to landing. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the lifting capability, you can modulate your, uh, um, your control uh, so that you can perform a precision landing and a smoother re-entry uh, profile. And so in terms of space plane, if you really tell me what is the most concrete output of the agency result in terms of mission, is definitely the IXV mission, which was flown in February 2015. And on that uh, mission, which was the IXV mission, we are now building the Space Rider, which is in fact a space plane which is uh, building on the IXV, as uh, composed by two modules. The first module is uh, uh, the re-entry module, exactly, let's say, a modified version of the IXV, which has flown in 2015, and an uh, uh, orbital service module, which is derived from a modification of the upper stage of Vega 
see under development, also under my responsibility. So we are putting together these uh, two components, so Vegacy and uh, uh, IXV, to make up the Space Rider mission in an optimized fashion. These allow us to uh, maximize the payload to orbit and uh, to reduce uh, development and recurring costs, so really to have uh, a very effective uh, European product. Um, what are the sort of things that you would use a, a, that kind of lifting body type spacecraft rather than the normal traditional spacecrafts that we normally see? Because uh, I can see all around the world that, that quite a few people are building uh, lifting body spacecraft. But what, what job can they do that uh, other spacecraft can't? Take the two extremes. The two extremes is one is the, the capsule, and on the other extreme you have the, um, uh, the shuttle type, the winged vehicles, what we call winged vehicles, like the space shuttle, okay? Or like the X-37, mm. for example, that the Americans are flying today. So these are two extremes. On one side you have the capsule, which has a very low controllability, and very low maneuverability, but they have a very high reliability because they have. Uh, it's quite a simple. Uh, it's quite a simple design, and it's uh, not uh, subject to big failure. Although there are also failure occurred with the capsules, but it's quite reliable. On the opposite side, you have uh, uh, the winged bodies like the space shuttle. This is very complex, very highly controllable, uh, very highly um, uh, maneuverable. But uh, sometimes uh, you have uh, had uh, problems uh, due to the complexity of the system, and we know that there have been some, uh, some problems with the space shuttle missions. And at the end, the reason why you uh, use these wings is really the last few minutes to approach the runway. So this is, let's say, the, uh, the, 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 the added value provided by the wings. And therefore... Mm. When we had to define the concept of the IXV, we uh, agreed that uh, following a deep assessment of all the possible configurations, the so-called lifting body uh, was the optimal because it could increase by one order of magnitude the controllability and maneuverability with respect to the capsule, so increasing in the direction of a, a, a space shuttle type, but without the wings, to avoid the complexity induced to these wings, that at the end you need only for the last two minutes, three minutes of the mission. So, and the lifting body is basically, if you know the shape of the IXV, which will be similar to the Space Rider 1, has is a shape that does not have wings, but it is designed in such a way that can create lift on its own. So basically, you have the possibility to use the, use the body shape to generate lift that you will use for control and maneuvers, but without having the, the let's say, the, the, the criticality of the wings. So increasing maneuverability, controllability, maintaining the reliability of the capsule. So it's an optimal design that we, uh, we have uh, found and that we are pursuing also with the Space Rider mission. In fact, the IX mission was completely flawless. We had a fantastic uh, 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 result in terms of uh, data, performances, precision, landing, and so on. So it's really a compromise. It's an ideal uh, um, compromise between the two extremes, which are capsules and wing bodies. So, it's, so it, it falls kind of squarely somewhere in the middle between those two ideas. Yes. Yeah, in the two extremes, as I said, the capsule has advantages like reliability, but uh, strong disadvantages in terms of controllability and maneuverability. On the opposite side, the winged vehicles uh, like the space shuttle have uh, 
positive aspects like controllability and maneuverability down to landing, but uh, uh, reliability is, uh, let's say, um, linked to complexity, which uh, uh, is not, uh, let's say, ideal because it's too complex. So we are somewhere in between trying to maximize what is uh, trying to maximize what is good from the capsule and what is good from the winged vehicles, re- reducing, let's say, the disadvantages of both configurations. So with somewhere in the middle, an optimal compromise to have excellent performances at limited risk. Uh, is the idea for this extra maneuverability really for the sort of descent stage? Is that so that you can get the capsule back to Earth and the experiments, presumably, that it's been carrying back to Earth uh, and quickly uh, establish contact with it rather than it falling in the ocean somewhere or falling in a desert? Is, is that the idea? Yes, the idea is the following. The IEGV mission was performed with a full re-entry path over the Pacific Ocean for a reason of safety and also because it was the first time that we were performing an hypersonic flight with a lifting body. So the decision was to land on, uh, on the sea to uh, minimize the safety constraints because when you fly uh, several tons of, uh, of, uh, of hardware, uh, you cannot fly over a populated region, especially when you do it the first time. But so the, the IAXV was, uh, uh, had the objective to test in flight hypersonic reentry technologies like uh, thermal protection system, advanced guidance, navigation and control uh, um, uh, algorithms, uh, aerothermodynamics phenomena and so on. But it was all necessary for reusability. So all this was uh, fundamental to address reusability. But the reason why we splashed down in the, in the ocean was uh, to avoid, the, to, to simplify the safety part. So to test in flight reusable technology, but not to be reflown the vehicle itself. Now with Space Rider, we are doing the step ahead. So basically we uh, are targeting a ground landing, so to land on ground, so that the, 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 the re-entry module can be reflown up to six times. So this is, let's say, the step ahead with respect to the AXV. So they both will have on board uh, very similar, if not identical, uh, technologies, but one was just for in-flight testing, while the other one will be actually reflown. So it is really taking uh, these as key objective. The idea is really to refly uh, five times plus the maiden flight, so six times in total. Wow. And uh, when will we see, do you think, the first uh, space rider enter service? So what we are working at the moment is so we are finalizing the uh, requirements review. So we are doing the system requirements review and which is moving ahead quite uh, smoothly. We have already signed the contract with industry, as you might have heard from the latest news, uh, on, uh, uh, to, to arrive already at the critical design review, so basically completing all the design phase uh, by 2019, so in, uh, in two years. And after that, we believe that we will be ready with other two years to have the maiden flight taking place. So 2021. Are there any big technological hurdles that you have to get over before you can uh, get to that entering service point? Or um, are most of that work being done with ARD and the XIV? Uh, um, With respect to technologies, uh, the key re-entry technologies have been mastered. So we we do not... uh, 
I'm quite confident that we don't have, uh, let's say, issues on the key critical technologies. It is really what uh, uh, will be, let's say, the key objective is uh, to uh, make uh, um, the system as much as possible reusable. So once you reuse one uh, technology, you need to be sure that you maintain the same reliability. Mm-hmm. Therefore, uh, this is uh, something that we are uh, focusing on to try to ma- make the system as much as possible reusable with the need to minimize the replacement of the some hardware. And uh, so I think uh, really the, the, the key is in this, in this sense the, with the, the objective to minimize the, the, the replacement of uh, specific hardware and, uh, and maximize the reusability because for the rest, the technologies are available and, uh, and uh, I don't see any showstopper at technology level. Wow. And what, what sort of payloads and what kind of, what kind of uh, missions will, will the Space Rider go on? The Space Rider uh, will, uh, um, uh, will perform basically two types of key missions, if we want to simplify it. The first one is uh, uh, microgravity experimentation, because the Space Rider being a free, fl- free flyer will have uh, a, a very advanced uh, microgravity uh, environment because there will be no disturbances of any sort. And uh, so it will be really flying uh, freely uh, around the Earth. And uh, so it can provide uh, a lot of, uh, um, let's say, advantages environment to uh, experiments for microgravity. And uh, we have already been contacted also by, uh, let's say, commercial uh, uh, customers that uh, would have an interest to exploit this, uh, uh, this, uh, this option. And then in addition to that, we have uh, also the second, let's say, line of uh, activity in orbit is in-orbit validation, in-orbit demonstration of technologies for multiple uh, applications and uh, for Earth observation, for telecommunication, science, robotic exploration, and uh, so the fact that you can have a, a space laboratory that brings your hardware into flight, into space, and can operate the, the, the hardware in, in the, the payloads into space, and then the, 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 the system can allow you to get back your hardware in your laboratory to understand what was the, the impact of space um, into the technology is uh, quite unique. So. We, uh, we are building also in this sense uh, to have uh, a payload bay which will allow extensive in-orbit validation, in-orbit demonstration of all these technologies. And in terms of capacity, we are targeting 800 kilograms of uh, payload for a cargo bay which is nearly one cubic meter. So it's quite, uh, let's say, uh, a lot of uh, potential in this, especially considering the fact that uh, it will be certainly a competitive, uh, let's say, uh, cost per kilogram of the payloads. So we are quite uh, and we are quite happy of uh, the the current design that is already allowing for this uh, for this potential. And uh, so this will also allow us to uh, let's say uh, capture. Uh, institutional market, so not only commercial market, but also institutional market. Yeah, I mean, talking about the commercial market out there, are there any other vehicles around the world that are being developed that are similar to the Space Rider? Or is the Space Rider unique in the fact that it does kind of fall between this capsule and space plane design? 
I can say that uh, the Space Rider, I mean, one could uh, assimilate the Space Rider mission on a sort of X-37 type of mission, but there is a big difference to, to, to it, that X-37 is uh, for a defense purposes, military applications, so we don't know what they really do into space, while in our case, uh, our objective will be fully civilian, and uh, you will always know what we are flying, so it is... Uh, Let's say the mission profile, I can say, might seem to be similar, but in our case, uh, uh, we will we will do it for civilian applications. Then there are other um, other initiatives, uh, um, yes, that could be similar, but maybe of a larger uh, larger scale, like uh, the Dream Chaser in America. And uh, yes, but we believe that uh, one complements each other and the other. And the, in the sense of space rider, we believe that uh, having uh, uh, the capability that we have with the cost that uh, we uh, we plan to to cope with, uh, it's quite competitive. So it's it's uh, let's say it well fits the overall worldwide uh, uh, competition. Where does um, where does the Vega fly from when space rider flies, and where will it land? As you know, we would. Uh, uh, take off on board the Vega because it's an integrated space transportation with Vega, with Vega C in particular, and we will uh, take off, we will lift off from uh, the CSG, the uh, Centre Spatial Guyanese in uh, French Guiana, and uh, then let's say the reference standard mission is to go up to 400 kilometers altitude, and uh, there we'll operate uh, the payload um, for the time needed, so it can stay for months into orbit. And then at a certain point, the, the orbital service module will uh, command the deorbiting maneuver. So they will, it will push in the opposite direction to get uh, deorbiting the whole system. Then they separate. The orbital service module will uh, destroy, while the reentry module with all the payloads on board uh, lands on ground. And today, the baseline for landing is uh, Santa Maria India Zorres. Uh, as, uh, let's say, baseline uh, um, uh, possibility. We are also looking at uh, alternative uh, um, landing sites, but, uh, let's say, our reference today is uh, Santa Maria, the island of Santa Maria in the Azores. Yeah, I, I saw one, I, I did see the IXV at STEC. I, I think that was the drop, the drop article. Where, where, do you know where the other, the one that flew perfectly, where's that now based can can you go, can people go see it uh the other one yes it's uh, it's uh, based in turin at this moment uh, it's uh, uh close to the premises of uh, Thales Arena space which is uh, let's say which was the prime of the IXV and which is the co-prime now of the space rider mission together with the ELV and Avio so we joined the, the two forces they, they work together and so but so since they will build on the experience of the IXV the uh, for the re- Entry module of Space Rider, they they have it in house uh, uh, at their premises. Is is that able to be viewed by the public, or is that? Um... Yes, yes, yes. It is. It has been uh, it has been shown also at uh, uh, Le Bourget Air Show just after the mission. So if you were in Paris at that occasion, you could uh, you could touch it, and uh, then um, yes, it's it's anyway is 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 possible to organize. Uh, Let's say a visit within uh, limits. Yeah. I mean, we cannot bring uh, thousands of people. To <laughs> I think I'll yeah, I'll have to get myself down to Turin 
to have a look at it. Uh, it sounds like a, re- a really exciting mission. It's one that you don't hear about at, at all over here in uh, in Britain. I'm assuming that there are British companies involved. Yeah, what what nations are involved actually with with this particular project? But there are involved uh, several nations, uh, including UK. And uh, so it is not true that UK does not participate. UK participates, and uh, and actually UK wishes to. Uh, let's say support uh, the program uh, even more on the technological side because uh, there are uh, several uh, let's say activities ongoing in UK like Skylon and so on. So I believe that uh, this fits uh, uh, UK's uh, uh, big picture to let's say to develop uh, uh, along those lines. Uh, um, so and there are several uh, countries. I mean, you name it. It's, there is UK, of course. There is Italy. There is uh, France. There is uh, uh, Belgium, uh, there is Switzerland. There are really more than ten countries participating to the program. Right. Well, I'll I'll do my best to uh, <laughs> to uh, blow the trumpet for it because yeah, I mean it's, it's one of those things that e- that on even on Wikipedia it's still known as the Pride mission rather than the Space Rider mission. So someone needs <laughs> <Yes>. to <laughs> someone needs not, to update that. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> yes, I do not take care of updating Wikipedia. No. <laughs> yeah, because uh, but uh, yes, it should uh, it should yep. be updated. Correct. And I've just got I've got one last question for you, Giorgio, and that's um, my son's fourteen, and he's very very much into space, and I think he he wants to work in the in the space industry as an engineer. I'm uh, wondering if you've got any advice to him or anything that he can follow in your footsteps. I mean, if he really uh, loves the space, then he should um, he should continue. I think. Uh, Kids uh, shall uh, really invest on what they really like and what they really love. So if he really loves uh, this, uh, this type of application, he only has to study and uh, get graduated as soon as possible and then eventually join either in industry or uh, agencies working uh, in this field. And I'm sure that uh, if he's uh, motivated and uh, um, and positively stubborn on uh, the goal he wants to achieve, he will surely uh, achieve uh, any goal uh, he has in mind. So uh, studying engineering is uh, certainly, uh, let's say, maybe the the, the most straightforward uh, uh, way, but we also have in the sector employed uh, physicians, people who have worked in uh, chemistry. So, but of course, I mean, uh, aerospace engineering, mechanical engineering, uh, aeronautical engineering in general, is uh, let's say maybe the the, the 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 most straightforward one to to really do let's say my job at the end. Fantastic, and I hope I hope you've had fun doing your job. Sounds like you've travelled a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Giorgio. Thank you very much uh, for the interest in the program, and I uh, will be available uh, for any update in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. How interesting is that? Super cool, and also fun, Matt, because mm-hmm. Vega. Mm-hmm. was always my favourite baddie in Street Fighter 2. It's also my favourite way of determining where I am in the night sky with the oh, summer triangle, yeah, particularly particularly, yeah, particularly yeah, in summer. Beautiful. I can spot Vega pretty easily and, and, and then find my bearings. It's good. Um, a chap called Humphrey Smith has written in this letter. It, it was an email. No one writes on letters anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, Granddad. <laughs> he goes. What if Andromeda was made of antimatter and collided with the Milky Way? Whoa, Ooh. that is deep. That is deep space. 
So to quickly clear this up, right? Um, yes, if Andromeda was to collide with the Milky Way, uh, and it was made of antimatter, then yes, there'd be an almighty flash. Yeah. And, and actually, Humphrey has put in put in the calculations. He's basically got the mass of Andromeda and the mass of Milky Way, added them together, and then used E equals M C squared to come out with the fact that it the energy released would be five point three nine times ten to the power fifty three megajoules. I don't know. You know, I've not I've re- not redone those calculations, but no, that I sounds think that's like, right. I'm just going over it in my head. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's about right. I reckon. Yeah, 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 but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I don't think that any galaxy is made of antimatter. And the reason why I say that is if it was and you had these collisions, they would be a lot, lot brighter than even the brightest quasars that we see out in the uh, observable universe. So it seems like it's not happening. And of course, if Andromeda or any of the local galaxy group were um, made of antimatter, then the kind of filaments, the filaments of, of interstellar, the interstellar medium, basically, the intergalactic medium, uh, would be t- is still touching and still interacts. And, uh, and we'd be seeing flashes of energy there, giving off X-rays and all, you know, all sorts of nonsense. So um, it's highly unlikely because we would see the interaction, I think, at the kind of edges of where, of, of where the different galaxies are all interacting with each other and uh, maybe you see the only other thing is that maybe they don't interact with each other and that antimatter can act as a kind of anti-gravity as well so that they're repelled but if that was the case then the measurements that andromeda is slowly collapsing towards us yeah prob- probably isn't true well it doesn't make sense because the because the, the measurements say andromeda is coming towards us and that we are going to merge with andromeda at some point um <clears throat> so so it doesn't look like that explanation works either so i think really we're going to have to say it's not very likely that andromeda is made of antimatter and if it was we would see the evidence of it it's a good well, job it isn't, really. That's all I'm saying. I like that, Matt. I, I think you've done good homework there. And thank yeah, you, Humphrey. I'd, yeah. Thank you, Humphrey. Uh, keep writing them in. You know, we'll try and we'll try and cover the subject correctly. I mean, it would have been nice to have someone like Jim Al-Khalili or someone like that helping we should us with put, answering we that We should one. put that question out. If there's any of our ESA mates listening, um, or, or, or our mates from the States, could somebody... Offer an explanation, please, as to what Matt has just said. Uh, yeah. Is he correct? Do you challenge it? Yeah, maybe. You think, yeah. More yeah. importantly, do you think that if I do go to Mars one day, which I believe is the case, mm-hmm. that my pant size will be interstellar medium? <laughs> because I don't know if Calvin Klein make... I mean, it would need to be a different material on Mars, wouldn't it? All that matters you is know. that it covers Uranus. Oh, oh, you went there. Oh, Matt. Matt, would you like a space fact? Yeah, go on then. Do we have a jingle yet? No, no jingle. We need to get a jingle. Can someone send us in our space fact jingle? Space fact jingle. Okay, you ready, Matt? Do it. The moon looks bigger on the horizon. It's crazy, this one. What do you think about that? It's one of my favourite things to talk about because 
the moon just looks bigger than it is anyway. As in, when you look at the moon, it looks big to the human eye. For some yes. reason, we see it being big. But as soon as you hold up like something small to it, you realise how you know how small an area of the sky it's actually taking up. How mm. how many few arc seconds, as they say, it takes up. And it's just really, really fascinating. And the weird thing is, yeah, as the moon goes down towards the horizon, it looks bigger and bigger and bigger. And no one really knows why that is. There's quite a few sort of, um, some explanations, like when it's near the horizon, you have other objects that you can use as a reference to. So therefore it looks much bigger because you can see trees in the distance and then you can see the moons much bigger than the trees and, and, and things like that. But, that apparently doesn't fully cover the the whole um, the whole thing because you can even it even looks bigger when you don't have another frame of reference there. Uh, it was one of the very first episodes of the Sky at Night, I believe, where Patrick but it's not Moore... the Earth. But is not the Earth the frame of reference? Because it's when it when it's on the horizon. Obviously, it's being blocked by our planet. Yeah, I know, but you've got no, but there's no frame of reference, is there, really, for that? But on the, on the very first uh, Sky at Night, I believe Patrick Moore did the moon, moon illusion where he basically held up a disc and proved that that no matter where it was in the sky, it was the same size. And I think it's really, really fascinating. I'll tell you a really good way to actually see it for yourself is to look up at the sky, and when you ever you notice a really big moon, get out your camera and then take a photograph of it with your phone camera and realise how tiny the little dot yeah, is yeah. when you look at it yeah. on, your, on your screen. It's like, how come it's not showing really, really big on my screen? And this actually leads me to one of my things that really, really annoys me. Uh, is is this and it happens every like every six months we get the news story about the super moon, yeah. the super moon. And it's like, it's the most annoying well I, I don't know at least it gets people looking at the moon but it's like it, it, <laughs> I sometimes it looks... look at the photos and I'm thinking that's got to be photoshopped it's like really it's, no it's what what people have done is used a really long focal length and then take you know taken a picture so the moon looks really massive in the against objects that are very very far away that's okay I mean that's just a sort of photographic trick mm. but it's not because the moon look there is you know literally most people would not be able to perceive that the moon is any bigger when it's a super moon than when it's any other moon. Yeah, it's it's slightly bigger when it's slightly nearer, but it's yeah. so mi- it's so minimal that mm. there's no way you can really tell the difference. So this this whole idea of the super moon is slightly over the top and if not slightly irritating. And I'm not the only one, by the way. There's a it seems that sorry the, if that we've offended any supermooners out there. Yeah, hey, I mean, Matt, do you know it, what I think is more exciting than the super yeah, moon? Yeah, yeah, the the, the blood moon. Oh yeah, red blood moon. moon. That for me is cool. And every now and then you get a blue moon. That's true. That is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, once in a blue moon, there is a blue moon. I saw you standing alone. I'm, not, I'm always alone, Jamie. Uh-huh. Like like Captain Kirk, I know that I'll die alone. You won't, Matt. You won't. I'll be there with you. And we'll be. I'll be like before you go, Matt. Could you just once more tell me about antimatter and Andromeda? Okay. And you'll be like, I'm a bit ill. I just can't. I can't now. Anyway, let's wrap this. Let's wrap this baby up. Let's wrap this baby <laughs> let's up. Let's do it. It's the interplanetary podcast. Putting, putting the ace, ace back, back 
into, into space. space. That's what they were chanting in Morocco. So it's time for you to make your way over to iTunes and uh, leave us a lovely five-star review. All you have to do is ask yourself this question. Did mm-hmm. you enjoy this podcast? If you did, then why not hop over to iTunes? That's all we're saying. And if you didn't, write us an email about why you didn't. Yeah, and, we'll, and we will block you. And no, we won't. We'll write you a really snarky snarky response. No, no, we won't. That's ridiculous. It would be ridiculous. And also keep sending us in. We love when we get feedback and questions. Yeah, I like the letter. Keep sending it in. Yeah, good work, Humphrey. Humphrey Smith. He didn't tell us what country he was from. Never mind. Well, Matt, you have a good day no Jamie you have a good you, day you listener have a good day listeners have a good week have a good have week have a great week Christmas is coming you know and if we're not all dead from a from a you know meteorite skimming earth then uh, we're going to have a great great new year so <laughs> yeah, thank, keep positive yeah, thanks for that, yeah. Yeah, no, it's very very positive that's it then see you soon see you soon bye bye bye